Please open your Bibles to Ephesians, Philippians chapter 2. Just making sure you guys are awake. And I saw some of you opening Ephesians. No, Philippians, Philippians chapter 2. We continue our journey marching through this beautiful letter. The letter to the Christians in Philippi. I want to invite you to stand as we read God's precious Word. The Word above all earthly power. Starting verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear trembling, for it's God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or battle in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I'm glad and rejoice with you all, Likewise, you all also should be glad and rejoice with me. Be seated. Lord, we ask you, we beg you to come right now and speak to us through your word. Lord, we, we all here love you treasure you, want to hear from you, as we just read, word of life, give us life. For those who are dead in their sins, I pray that you'd bring regeneration, bring salvation today, Lord. Bring sanctification to those who are already saved. Help me to be faithful to you, Lord. I desperately need your help. And the congregation also need your help. We all have responsibilities here. How we listen, how I preach. So as beggars, we come before you and ask for your Holy Spirit to be working in us, through us. Thank you for this wonderful church. We pray your blessing upon those who are not present this morning. Pray that you visit them with grace and mercy. We pray for other brothers and sisters in Christ here in Salem. As some of them are gathering, we pray they'll be strengthening your church. Lord, do you tell us that we who are evil give good gifts to our children? How much more you, who is holy 
perfect, all good, will not give us the Holy Spirit. We ask for a new measure, a new feeling. For the sake of Your name. We pray that in Christ's beautiful name. Amen. Amen. You need to let go and let God. Let go and let God. You need to stop trying and start trusting. We have heard this many times. Actually comes from the Keswick theology. It became a Keswick mantra. And that has affected and permeated much of the church of Christians. It's this idea that to achieve a higher life, to achieve a, a place in life that you have never been before, you have to produce, you have to make no effort. You just need to let go and let God. One of the famous proponents of the Keswick Holiness Movement, he said, If any of you are making the mistake of trying to live the victorious life, you are cheating yourself out of it. For the victory you get by trying for, it is counterfeit victory. You must substitute another word, not try, but trust. And you cannot try and trust at the same time. Try is what we do. And trusting is what we, we let the Lord do. We do not dare to help. Our efforts can and do effectually prevent such victory. And that's sadly how so many Christians view the Christian life. So many professing Christians view as if there is an easy fix for the Christian life. There is an easy fix for the Christian life. And that is just this suddenly experience. They learn just to let go and let God. You stop trying and you just start trusting. And you don't need to do anything else but to trust. And your life will be completely changed. Sadly, that's not what the Bible says. That has nothing to do with the Scriptures. It's, it's problematic because it's a misunderstanding of the sovereignty of God, the responsibility of man, and the doctrine of concurrence, how God, who is sovereign, works through man's working. The Scriptures describe the Christian life not as letting go and letting God, but actually as an agony or agonizing battlefield. You're fighting, struggling. Cut off your hands. Buck out your eyes. Is that letting go and letting God? <laughs> Strive side by side. Stand united. Take up the whole armor of God. Of course, we don't fight 
we don't battle for our salvation in the sense of justification or adoption or regeneration. No one can do that. That's the work of God alone. He alone can bring justification and adoption and regeneration. But the mark, the evidence that we have been justified, that we have, that we have been regenerated, that we have been saved, is a life not of letting go and letting God, but a life of pursuing holiness, with which, without that, no one can see God. The Bible is clear that God is a warrior, and His people are part of His army. Of course, you've got to be careful with the continuity and discontinuity of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. But in both covenants, God is a warrior and His people is an army. Under the Old Covenant, there are primarily different battles as a nation. For the church, it's very clear the spiritual battles that we are facing. And if you walk through the New Testament, you see how often the Christian life is described with the metaphors of war. J.C. Ryle, he writes, There are thousands of men and women who go to churches every Sunday, and they call themselves Christians. Their names are in the baptismal register or in the membership register. They're reckoned Christians while they live. They are married with a Christian marriage service. They are buried as, a, as Christians when they die. But you never see any fight about their religion. Of spiritual strife and exertion and conflict and self-denial and watching and warring, they know literally nothing at all. Such Christianity may satisfy men, and those who say anything against it may be thought very hard and uncharitable. But it certainly is not the Christianity of the Bible. It's not the religion which the Lord Jesus founded and His apostles preached. True Christianity is a fight. He goes on, he writes, The true Christian is called to be a soldier. And must behave as such from the day of his conversion to the day of his death. He's meant to live a life of He's not meant to live a life of religious easy, indolence, and security. He must never imagine for a moment that he can sleep and doze along the way to heaven. Every professing Christian is the soldier of Christ. He's bound by his baptism to fight Christ's battle against sin, the world, and the devil. The man that does not do this breaks his vow. He is a spiritual defaulter. He does not fulfill the engagements made for him. The man that does not do this is practically renouncing his Christianity. The very fact that he belongs to a church, attends a Christian place of worship, and calls himself a Christian, is a public declaration that he desires to be reckoned as a soldier of Jesus Christ. Has your life been marked by battles, striving side by side, war to conquer your flesh, war to conquer self-centeredness, battles to overcome, 
the desire to an easy life. Spurgeon says, We are foolish to expect to serve God without opposition. The more zealous we are, the more sure we are, we will be assailed by the demons of hell. War rages all around, and to dream of peace is dangerous and futile. So much for the let go and let God. Stop trying trust. The Bible says, put on the full armor. Put on the new man. Clothe yourselves. Put off the old man. Put to death the old deeds. And the beauty of the gospel is that we don't do that by ourselves. The beauty of the gospel is that we fight together. Salvation is a community project. That's very important. Salvation is a community project. We need others around us. A soldier fighting alone is what? A dead soldier. There is no lone ranger in the kingdom of God. It's impossible. Jesus has given us the local church as the place in which His soldiers assemble together to serve Him by serving one another. And doing this, we shine God's light in this dark world, not by relaxing and letting go and letting God, but we shine a light into this dark world by showing our unity, our efforts, our love, our zeal in serving Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here in Philippians chapter 2. So, let's go to Philippians chapter 2. As you remember, the context is key. Paul is developing, and please look with me in chapter 1, verse 27. Chapter 1, verse 27, because that's the beginning of the main exhortation where we find ourselves. Paul says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are what? Standing firm in one spirit, one mind, doing what? Striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Very important. That's where we are. In Philippians, and as we are preaching, I'm gonna. I started verse 12 last Lord's Day, the call to obedience. Today, I want to go through the ground for the obedience. That's verse 13, and I want to do verse 14 also, the specific area of obedience. So, my plan is to cover go back verse 12, verse 13, and then verse 14. So, verse 12, let's review briefly what we saw last Lord's Day. Therefore, therefore, what do you do with the therefore? See the context, what he's talking about. And there is the 
the, the very immediate context of Jesus, have this mind among yourselves, this mindset that was in Christ Jesus, who though being the form of God, did not consider that something to be grasped, but he humbled himself. He humbled himself by becoming obedient. Ah, key word here, obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Well, that's where we are. And then the king is elevated to the highest place. So we have, therefore, my beloved. And every time, every time I read this word, beloved, I'm humbled by this word. We who were children of wrath, children of Satan, because of the gospel, because of Jesus, we become beloved in Christ. We who used to hate one another, now love one another. That's just beautiful. You think about Paul, a man who hated Christ so much, a man who hated Gentiles so much, now he calls them beloved. You are the object of my soul's love. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, that connects to verse 8, the obedience of Christ. So now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out, that's the imperative, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So how they're going to work out how they're going to be obedient is by working out their salvation, as the ESV translates. So whatever we do with work out your own salvation, we've got to remember one very important detail. Whatever that means, it's in the second person plural. You all, y'all, working out your salvation. And has... As I said last Lord's Day, this sentence here has produced a lot of work because of the translation of work. Work out. Work out your salvation. God's the one working you, both to will and to work. And I believe that there is a better translation for that sentence, for verse 12. And my plan is to give you and give you the support. So I'm going to give you my thesis and then the support for my thesis. And I would love to hear your feedback. I believe that the best way is to understand Paul's command here with the military background that Paul has been using. The military, the war background is very important. If you remember some time ago when you we were going through verses, chapter 1, verse 27 through 28, I I preached about the, the importance of the war language in the Bible, and specific, specifically in Philippi. Philippi became Philippi because of a massive war, the Battle of Philippi. Octavian, you had Brutus, Cassius, famous war in Philippi. And that city became a Roman colony with a bunch of Roman soldiers living there. 
So military background, military was all over the city. And that's why Paul uses a lot of military language in this letter. And we noted, for example, just so, to ref- so we can refresh our minds, we saw in verses 27 through 30, the vocabulary related to war, conduct yourselves, stand firm, salvation, strive side by side, struggle, opponent, suffering, engage in the same conflict. What is that? But all war language. Now, in verses 9 through 11, that's the, the context here, also war language. He died, and then what happened to Christ? The Father highly exalted Him. That was language about commanding officers winning battles and wars. They would be highly exalted. They would receive a new name, a new title. And then what happens? Knees bowing and tongues confessing. That's all military language of victory. Conquest, defeating your enemies. So it's all fresh. So when you come to verse 12 and you have the therefore that should keep us in this military track that Paul is leading us through. The word obey, that's key in verse 8 and then in verse 12. Hupekos was a military word for soldiers coming under obedience. As one scholar says, Christ leading the way as a general of his troops, being an example for his soldiers to follow, draws on the commonplace military conviction that generals should inspire their troops by their own example. That's all we see happening here. So he says, therefore, work out, work out. The key word there, katergatsomai, katergatsomai. This verb has different meanings. It could be translated as to bring about, to produce, to create. Paul used this, this word 20 times. And I need to explain a little bit here so you understand where I'm heading. The place where Paul used the most, the same verb, is in Romans chapter 7. When Paul is dealing with the war within, and then varies. Some people think that it's Paul after salvation, maybe Paul before salvation, maybe adding. It doesn't matter here. The, the thing is, Paul is describing a war within someone. The war is the law. And he's using this word here. So I believe, and I have here, that's my thesis. I don't know if I have. Let me go back here. Maybe I didn't. I didn't put, I'll read to you. I believe that in the context of Philippians 2, this word here, work out, carries the idea of engaging in an activity involved considerable expenditure and effort in order to achieve victory. I had to read some other documents this week, Greek documents, in which they use the same Greek word in military background, describing soldiers fighting. 
And I strongly believe that the closest parallel is Ephesians chapter 6, verse 13, where Paul uses the same word. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand in the evil day. And here's the verb. And having done all, to stand firm. And most scholars know that's a very awkward translation. It's hard to understand this translation. I think we will make sense when we compare Ephesians 6 and Philippians 2. Ephesians 6 is famous for what? This passage, verse 13, what is, where is it in it? The armor of God. The armor of God. Is that military? Is that war? Yes. That's very important. Ephesians, you can just turn one page backwards in your Bible and you will be in Ephesians. If you have a, a simple Bible, no, a study Bible. But Ephesians just before Philippians. And the beauty of Philippians, Ephesians, if you go and look at chapter 1, Paul opened the letter to the Ephesians declaring the triumph of Christ. He says that in Jesus we have the gospel for our salvation, verse 13. Paul boldly declares our victory in Christ, verses 20 through 23, chapter 1 of Ephesians. When he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly place, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that's named, and he put all things under his feet, just like a a commander who conquered war with his enemies now under his feet. That's the picture that Paul paints of Jesus, his victory. Then in Ephesians 2, Paul starts telling that this salvation, this victory is ours now in Christ. So he explains that our deliverance from the kingdom of darkness was accomplished by God alone. It's through mercy and grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. Yet, you come to chapter 6 of Ephesians, and what does Paul say? Put on the full armor of God, because the days are evil. You have an enemy. Throwing fiery darts against you. He wants to devour you. Wait a second, Paul. Just declare that we are seated in the heavenlies with Jesus. The victory of Christ. And now what does he do? He reminds us that there are still battles to fight. That's what Paul is doing. That's what we know by already, but not yet. The war has been conquered, but there are still violent battles to fight as we wait for the final consummation. Similar to Ephesians, in Philippians, Paul talks about the victory of Christ. He talks about the, the Philippians. He declares that he who began the good ergon, the good battle, the good work, will finish. Meaning, God will accomplish what He began in your lives. 
He told the Philippians that they have comfort in Christ. They have the fellowship of the Spirit. Paul says that they are the holy ones in Christ. What does he mean? They are in Christ. They are saved. But now, just like with Ephesians, comes the command. Stand firm. Strive side by side. Do you see the parallels? Ephesians, the victory of Christ, our salvation. Yet, put on the full armor and fight. Philippians, you are saints in Christ. God has given you the gift of faith. Salvation is yours. Yet, there is a battle. Stand firm. Strive side by side. I'm going to quote two scholars when it comes to... I don't know if that's the one. I think... Here we go. Two scholars in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 13. So one, Arthur Patia, he says that the word katerkatsomai, the same word used in Philippians 2.12, has the meaning of combat, combat leading to victory, fighting leading to victory. F.F. Bruce, in his commentary on Ephesians, is quoting another scholar, and he says that this verb has the meaning of having accomplished all that your duty requires. So that's why I trust the meaning to be here in in Philippians chapter 2. Paul is exhorting Jesus' troops. Let me see if I... Yes, right there. Jesus exhorting Jesus' troops in Philippi to continue being obedient by combating with all their energy and strength the battles that they're facing. That's very important. Sometimes translating as work out your salvation, we miss the whole idea and the concept of an army fighting together. The workout is easy to think about ourselves. But when it's fighting, you all fighting together, it reminds us of the collective. They are to combat and fulfill their duty in light of the victory that Christ has already conquered them for them. And that's why he says, your salvation, your salvation. We often talk about salvation and we forget the Old Testament background for salvation. And what is the Old Testament background for salvation? God rescuing His people. The concept of salvation comes from the Exodus. God saving His people. How does God save Israel from Egypt? Through a war. It's a battle with Pharaoh. Salvation has the concept of a military victory of God on behalf of His people. So, for example, we see in Exodus 14:13, And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, take your post, and see the soteria, the victory or the salvation of the Lord, which He will work for you today. And then it says, 
the Lord will fight for you, you have to be silent. Oh, do you see? Just let go and let God. No, first they're grumbling and they need to be quiet. They're grumbling, the context. They're grumbling, murmuring that God brought them to that place and now they're all going to die. And if you keep reading verse 15, the Lord says, Now go and cross this Red Sea. Do what you need to do. March as an army. Keep moving. So, the working out of salvation, as DSV translates, is a picture of an army fighting vigorously, strenuously, energetically for the victory that belongs to them. They are to keep fulfilling and discharging their duties in light of the victory they have in Christ. In Jesus, the war has been conquered. Amen? But there are battles to face. And the greatest battle that they are facing is within self-centeredness, murmuring, complaining, arguing between members in the church. I think one of the greatest illustrations of this truth is the D-Day and the V-Day. Second World War. D-Day. Do you know when took place D-Day? June 1944. And that's when everybody knows that that was... They took over Normandy. That's... There is no way now for Hitler to win this war. But do you know when the VE day took place? May 1945. Almost one year. Victory. They knew that they had won that war. But for almost one year, soldiers dying, battles raging. And if you told the soldiers who were fighting, hey, just let go. We already won. They would laugh at you. Because they had soldiers dying. The enemy knew that his time was short. Reminds us of Revelation 12. Revelation 20. Moises Silva, in his commentary, he says, even though he doesn't take the same trajectory as me, I think his comment reflects what I'm arguing for. He says, in the particular context of Philippians 2, the outworkings of the believer's personal salvation take the form of corporate obligations with the Christian community. The duty of seeking the good of others. What is that but military imagery? The soldiers, they don't seek their own good, but the good of others. And that's exactly what we see happening here. We know that the Philippians, they are in a campaign for the advancement of the gospel. We saw that before. The words that Paul uses, the Philippians, as an army, they are in a campaign to advance the gospel, conquer territory for the gospel. And the, Paul knows that a divided army 
is a defeated army. Therefore, there is the call that we find here. And I would say that this truth applies to our church too. The Lord has called us from the kingdom of darkness to His kingdom. This church is the Lord's church. And we are in a campaign to advance the gospel. And this unity is deeply harmful to an army. And look at verse 13. And I believe this supports my thesis because look at verse 13. For it's God for... We were talking to the kids last night. What, is, what does it mean? For it's God. And they're thinking and thinking. And someone said, because. Yes. Here's the reason. He's explaining why they must keep fighting and battling. Because it's God who is in them, fighting for them. And that makes sense when you remember that Paul just told them, you keep fighting, you keep battling, not only in my presence, but in my absence also. And now he explains that the, the victory that they have is not because of Paul's presence, but whose presence? God's presence with them. The success of their fighting and victory is not in Paul's presence in their midst, but in God's presence. Like in Ephesians 6, the power of the militant church is found in the Lord and in His mighty power. The one who humbled himself, was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, was raised to His throne, He's the Lord of all, and now He is in them. And they are in Him. The one to whom all knees shall bow and all tongues confess is now in them and they are in Him. So that's the recipe for victory. Also, when you understand the Old Testament background, I think that's where many scholars miss the point here. The Old Testament background is fundamental as Paul is dealing with the war language. If you remember in the Old Testament... The heart of holy war was God's presence with the army. There's an excellent book by Temper Longman and Daniel Raid, God is a Warrior. And they say the heart of holy war is God's presence with the army. And if you remember under the Old Covenant, Israel, every time they went to battle, they had to bring what with them? The Ark of the Covenant. War was worship. And they would bring the Ark of the Covenant representing what? God's presence. God's presence among them. Among them. That's very important. The Old Covenant saints were not indwelt with the Spirit of God. But they had God among them. That's why you had the temple. And now, under the new covenant, we are the temple. And you can see there, if you're taking notes, in Joshua chapter 3, verses 7 through 11, for example. 
But with the inauguration of the new covenant, with the blood of Christ, the ascension of Christ, God's presence through His Spirit is no longer only among us, but what? In us. In us. Not not, not with the ark, but with the Spirit of God within us. So, for it's God who works in you. Now God is in you. God's Spirit is within the church members. God is working all of us. Remember in the Old Covenant, very unique people to receive the Holy Spirit for very specific purposes. Different with the New Covenant. And all the saints, all the members of the true Israel are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. Another important aspect here is the word works. Energon. From where we get energy, energon as work. It's a verb frequently used by Paul for effectiveness of divine power. Interesting. And you can see the the root ERG erg. So the first word in verse twelve. Katergatsomai, erg. Katergatsomai, erg. And now we have energon, erg. That's very important. Here's the root word. The same word was often used in ancient military documents to speak of fighting or battling a war. One lexicon puts as defining energel, the verb, as working, active, busy, just like soldiers or ships. That's how they describe. I'm not saying that every time this word appears, you must translate as battling or fighting, but in the context of war, it should be translated as a fight or a battle, just like in the Old Testament. So what we see here, and and that's why I had to read, I don't know if you guys ever heard about Apianus of Alexandria, Apian, Apian. He was a, a a Roman historian. Wrote the civil wars, the Hannibalistic wars, and I had to read and see the frequency of time that he used these words in relation to war. It's fascinating. So that's. What I see happening here, the great commander who conquered and triumphed through the cross is now empowering his troops to keep fighting. For it's God who works in you, look at that, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And here's just the sovereignty of this commander, the sovereignty of this Lord. That's beautiful. He supplies both the determination to obey His own gracious purpose and the power to carry it out. We go to war, we battle. Why? Because He's already fighting for us and in us. God is always first. That's something we've got to keep in mind. God is always first. You chose Him. Why? Because He first chose you. You love Him, why? Because He first loved you. That's very important. 
We fight. Why? Because He's first fighting. And I think it's important for us to think about the Apostle Paul. He always comes to my mind as I'm thinking about these beautiful doctrines of God's salvation. And you remember him. He was literally a soldier of Satan, persecuting the church. He hated the church. You remember his anger towards the church? And then what happens to him? He's on his journey to persecute the church. It's not that he's going to church because he's seeking God. He's going to persecute the, the church, the Christianity. And what happens to Saul? What happened to him? He gets conquered. Right? He's on his knees. He's declaring the lordship of Jesus. He was conquered by whom? By Jesus. Let me ask you, how was his will before Jesus conquered him? Was his will to serve Christ or to hate Christ? Hate Christ. And the Lord comes and brings a work of regeneration, changes his heart, conquers him, and makes him now a, a soldier who is willing to lose his life for his Lord and his army. That's what happens. The same thing happens to all Christians. By nature, we belong to the kingdom of darkness. Apart from the work of the Spirit, we are part of Satan's army. And it's only when the Spirit of the victorious Jesus conquers our old and enslaved will that we now can battle for His will. That's very important. For God, the Lord of hosts, is the one now working in you both to will and to work and to battle and to fight for His good pleasure. Apart from the saving grace of God, we cannot even desire to serve God. That's very... It's very sad how so many of us, and I'll say I was infected and affected by this pagan idea that man has free will. We have been taught, we are contaminated with this concept that man is free. But if you read your Bibles, sin has permeated and contaminated all of us so deeply that we need a Savior. We need someone to save us. But we have this weird idea that sin, yes, yeah, sin is bad, but not that bad. So sin contaminated us, but not the will. As if somehow sin would just stop at the will and say, all right, let me stop at the will. The will is connected to the heart. The things we decide, the things we desire, the things we choose to do. It's not free. The things we choose to do is because of our desires. Therefore, our will is completely connected to our hearts. And nowhere in the Bible it says that man has a good heart by nature. 
And that's the beauty of the gospel. That God is so powerful, so loving, so merciful, that He comes and He removes that ugly, nasty heart and He puts a new heart that desires Him. And now, this awesome, victorious God, this triumphant God is working in us. That's beautiful. Before we were enslaved to sin, servants of Satan, before your salvation, even though if you're raised in a Christian home, let me tell you, you were a child of Satan. It doesn't matter who your parents were. The Bible is very clear. You've got to be born again. You need to be born again. You must be born again. And who caused the birth? God. God caused the birth. That's why all glory goes to Him. And now this awesome God is in us. Therefore, we must strive and fight with fear and trembling. The church must be marked not by a place where people come and have such a good time. It's like a theater. Or the Salvation Army kitchen. That's not the church. A social justice club. The church is to be marked as an army where people come and they see these people united, serving this holy God with fear and trembling, reverence. For an awesome God who is now dwelling within them. And now verse 14, our last point here. Verse 14. Let me move here. Yes, verse 14. Look at this specific area of obedience. How they are to work out their salvation. How they are to battle. How they are to fight. All together. He says, do what? Some things? Children. Some things? Almost all things. Do what? All things. Not some. Not almost all. All things. Without grumbling and disputing. The great enemy that's threatening this beautiful army in Philippi is the enemy within. Is the enemy within their own hearts. Self-centeredness. Selfishness. Murmuring. Grumbling. Disputing. Arguing. That's what's taking place. The Greek word for grumbling or murmuring, gongusmos, even sounds like a disease, right? Sounds like sickness, gongusmos. Oh, who wants gongusmos? Like sickening. So, one scholar, and I think I have there, uh, Gerald Hawthorne, he, he says, the word means complain or displeasure expressed in murmuring or secret talk. Or whisperings about someone. A kind of grumbling 
a grumbling action that promotes ill will instead of harmony and goodwill. And that's what destroys the unity of a church, is when people are dissatisfied, they are doing what? Going to somebody else, grumble, murmuring. If you're covering your mouth, so other people cannot see, but just that person who is around you, and you start murmuring and grumbling about what's taking place. The other word for arguing, the NIV says, or disputing, it's all the same. And this context carries the idea of divisive, divi- divisive actions, arguing for selfish purposes. And that's the outflow of grumbling and murmuring. Suddenly you are arguing, disputing. And an army that has soldiers grumbling against one another, murmuring about their fellow soldiers, arguing about everything, they cannot and will not survive the battle. Can you imagine an army in the battlefield where everybody's murmuring and grumbling against one another and disputing and arguing with one another? Who is going to get each other's back? The expression grumbling and complaint comes from the Old Testament. And you remember, it's famous for the nation of Israel. They're often described as a nation who was grumbling and complaining, murmuring and disputing. And the Lord hates this sin so much. that Remember what He does to a whole generation who was grumbling? They let them never come into the promised land. They put you death. Thousands of people. He puts to death thousands of people because of grumbling, murmuring, complaining. So Paul says, Do not be idolaters, as some of them, he's referring to the old covenant people, as some of them were. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Grumbling and murmuring leads to arguing and disputing that leads to division. God abhors that. It's a sin against Him, first of all. Because when we are murmuring and we are complaining, we are saying that God is not sovereign enough. He's not caring enough. He doesn't know enough. And you know better than God. Right? Isn't that true? When we are murmuring and grumbling and complaining, you are saying, God, your providence is foolish. You have no idea what I need right now. Who wants to be by a grumbler or a murmurer? It's a person horrible to be around. Brings division. So Paul says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. One scholar says, most Christians are able to do some things without complaining. 
It's when we are exhorted to be doing all things with a, with a joyful spirit that the difficulty comes. Yet, the outworking of the Christian faith in daily life lays this responsibility upon us. So, as a church, and you think about Philippians, Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, have this mind in you, have this mindset. Wait a second, so Christianity is a wonderful religion of the mind. We just need to study, right? It's a mind religion. Look at that, have the mind of Christ. And then Paul comes and reminds us that this mind is very active. The mind of Christ is very active. There is no laziness, apathy, inertia, negligence, sleepiness in the church. No, let go and let God. We are called to fight. We are to fight with all our energy and strength against grumbling, murmuring, complaining. There is an enemy outside and inside that loves to create division. Because this unity is the opposite of the unity that reflects the triunity of our God. So, many of us had heard those verses before. Work out your salvation with fear, trembling, for it's God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. I pray and I hope that now you have a different view of this verse. In the context of what Paul is dealing with. What it means to strive and battle and fight. Because God is now working and fighting in us and for us. And doing all things without what? Murmuring, grumbling, and complaining. And here's the beauty of the gospel, brothers and sisters. If God is commanding that, it's because He's enabling us to do that. And we can do that in the power of the gospel. That's the beauty of the gospel of Jesus. Is that Christ conquered us. Christ took hold of us. He changed our hearts. He gives us a new heart. That was the promise of the old, for, for the old covenant saints. There will be a new covenant. I will place a new heart in my people. And now instead of fighting on behalf of Satan and sin, we fight on behalf of Christ and His people. And He's working in us, in all of us as a church, individuals, both to will and to fight. That's beautiful, brothers and sisters. If you are in Christ and Christ is in you, you have the power to overcome all idolatry in your life. Because you have God working in you. No matter what idol you have in your life. If God is in you, this Almighty God, and you are in Him, there is no pornography, Alcohol, nicotine, gluttony, laziness, gossip, anything that's strong enough. 
He's in you and He's working both to will and to fight for His good pleasure. Amen? And you see that this fight is not for our happiness. This battle is not for my well-being. It's not just so I can feel happy, comfortable, secure. It's for His good pleasure. For His glory. And it's done. Remember, in the beginning, it's a community project. We fight together. We strive side by side together. We help each other. The working now of salvation, the battling, the fighting for the salvation we have is a community project. And we must be helping each other. Instead of thinking, how am I working? How am I fighting for my own salvation? Our salvation. Yes, there is the aspect of you doing your part, but you got to stop thinking just about yourself. There is an army. There is a body. Amen? Lord, we thank You for saving us, for changing us, for capturing us, invading us, conquering our old, sinful, nasty will and giving us a will to follow You and fight for You and love You and treasure You. Lord, we thank You there. And it's amazing. The Creator of the universe, the Sustainer of all things, now dwells within His people. Thank You, Lord. Thank You. We don't deserve to have You in us by no means. We deserve hell. We deserve to be far away from You because of sin. And yet, in Your love and Your mercy and Your kindness, You conquered us. You triumphed over us. You subdued us. You took us captive. And now we love. We love to serve You. Lord, for those who are not of Yours, of Your kingdom here, I pray that today, today, You'd give them the will and the hands and the feet to run to the cross and embrace Jesus. Oh Lord, how we love You. We pray they would guard us as a church. Help us to keep fighting this good fight. We know that the victory is ours, but there are many battles. There are many battles. And the enemy is angry. Because he knows that his time is short. So help us as a church to join our arms together. Stand firm in one spirit, striving side by side. And fighting, fighting for our salvation in you, Lord. Help us to conquer grumbling and murmuring and complaining. Help us to help one another with this, Lord. And all this for your good pleasure, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.